This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome to the broadcast for Sunday, February the 5th, 2012. And uh, coming up at midnight, thereabouts, uh, Top Secret Places. We're going to speak to uh, researcher, author, Nick Redfern, one of my faves on the program. He'll discuss uh, Area 51 and Hangar 18, the Montauk facility out in Long Island, uh, the... Uh, uh, the Dulce, uh, Dulce Base uh, um, Harp in Alaska, Pine Gap, Fort Detrick, Rudlow Manor, you name it. We're going to get into uh, those select few highly classified installations uh, about uh, which the governments of the U.S., Australia, and others, uh, they don't, uh, well, they prefer that we, the general public, uh, remain steadfastly ignorant. And it's all detailed nicely in Nick's uh, latest book. Uh, which is entitled, Keep Out, Places the Governments Don't Want You to Know About. Uh, But leading us up until midnight, we are going to talk with my uh, next guest, who is also an independent researcher and author. He's been intrigued by the American Southwest since his initial trip there in 1987. If you've never been to the Southwest of the United States, whether we're talking the Four Corners or we're talking... uh, Uh, Arizona, New Mexico, I've spent some time there, southwest Texas. It is a captivating uh, place that tends to just grab hold of you. And um, it it has an allure for me. I'll get into that a little bit later, perhaps. But uh, his um, uh, three books, uh, nonfiction books, uh, have have talked about um, the ancient... Uh, stars cities of the American Southwest. The first one was called the Orion Zone, ancient star cities of the American Southwest. That was followed up by Eye of the Phoenix, Mysterious Visions and Secrets of the American Southwest. And in autumn 2010, the third book in the series called The Kivas of Heaven, Ancient Hopi Star Lore was published. His articles of interviews have appeared in Ancient American, Atlantis Rising, Fate, Four Corners, uh, and World Explore, one of my favorite uh, uh, magazines from uh, David Hatcher Childress, and also UFO Magazine. One of Gary David's essays was also published in Lost Knowledge of the Ancients, 
a Graham Hancock reader. And that being said, great to welcome Gary David to The Conspiracy Show. Hello, David. How are you? Hi, Richard. How are you doing? Thanks for having me on. Oh, my pleasure. And uh, you had reminded me uh, in an earlier email, you and I actually talked, I guess, about five or going on six years ago. Yeah, I think when my first book, The Orion Zone, came out, I think we we had a a talk over the radio. That's right. That's right. I remember that now. And and, uh, tell me about your first trip to the American Southwest. Why were you there and and, uh, what, what attracted you there? Um, I was living in South Dakota, and of course it's very cold in, in South Dakota, and we w- wanted some uh, relief from from the uh, terrible winters. Um, so uh, we took a trip down to the uh, southwest, down to New Mexico and uh, and uh, Arizona, and I st- we went to some of the pueblos, the uh, ancient ruins that the uh, Anasazi had built. Um, in the um, uh, starting about 1100 A.D., something somewhere along there, and uh, I just was capt. Like you said, it's a captivating place. The landscape is just so immense, and uh, it's just an amazing, uh, amazing place. I had uh, had some experience uh, with Native Americans up in South Dakota with the Lakota Sioux. Uh, I used to teach English on the Pine Ridge Reservation and uh, got involved with some of the ceremonies there, the sweat lodges and so forth. So um, uh, when I came down to uh, Arizona, the the Hopi Indians, of course, live in northern Arizona. Uh, and um, we settled here in northern Arizona. And, uh, you know, I started going to some of the, uh, the Kachina dances and some of the ceremonies on the Hopi reservation. And, uh, again, I uh, was uh, visiting all the ruins, and I uh, did a lot of rock art research, uh, rock carvings that you can find all over the Southwest. So the, the place really just uh, just uh, has had me captivi- uh, ca- captivated, and uh, I've been here for about 16 years or so. Well, here we are in 2012, and of course everyone's talking about the Mayan, the end of the Mayan Long Count calendar, which is to take place in winter solstice of this year. But the Hopis, too, had this... Uh, they had, you know, an incredible amount of, 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 of prophecies, and um, many of them, I believe, uh, have sort of come true, or, or, you know, you can draw sort of some connections to things that have happened back to the, uh, the, the Hopi prophecies. But, uh, I mean, the, the, the Hopi prophecies and the Mayan prophecies are somewhat, are somewhat similar, are they not, in that they, they both speak to the end of an age, the coming, uh, of the, not the, necessarily the end of, of, of everything, but the end of life as we know it. Uh, yeah, the Hopi and the Maya uh, were once uh, traded with each other. The Hopi uh, migrated down into Mesoamerica and uh, met up with the, uh, the Maya down there uh, in southern Mexico and uh, Guatemala and that, that region. Uh, and um, there were, uh, you know, throughout the um, centuries, there, were a, 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 there was a strong trade network between the two groups. And so they, I think they influence each other, you know, as far as their idea of uh, an end, uh, cyclic time and the end of a certain age. Uh, the Hopi say that we were, uh, we are at the end of the fourth world. Um, the uh, Hopi believe that we survive uh, three different cataclysms uh, by various uh, means of destruction. And uh, a lot of the Hopi elders um, say there are signs uh, that this world is about coming to an end. Uh, there are different uh, signs that various uh, Hopi elders have have talked about. Um, you know, it uh, depends on which elder uh, you, you consult. 
But um, there's also a, a, a rock art um, panel called Prophecy Rock, which uh, I visited with one of the elders on uh, Third Mesa, uh, Grandfather Martin Geshwesioma. Um, and um, he talked about this, this uh, rock as being uh, kind of a, a sign that the end times are coming. There are basically two parallel lines, uh, and two paths that we can take in this world. Uh, one, of the, one of the paths is the, the path of the one heart. The other path is the one of the two hearts. And the two heart path uh, is uh, tuned into technology and Xbox 360s and iPads and iPhones and all the stuff. And uh, the, the path of the one heart is, is closer to Earth, closer to the natural rhythms of Earth. Um, you know, the Hopi are a very um, humble people. They are agrarian. They they farm the land. They they tend the corn, and they're still doing that up on the on the mesas. Uh, they still grow corn. They're still uh, doing the ceremonies. Uh, every year they have a you know an annual cycle that they go through a cycle of ceremonies that they they feel that they're keeping the world in balance. If you know if they perform these ceremonies. Um, properly. If they don't perform the ceremonies properly, they they say that the world will be thrown out of balance. Uh, the the kind of a, a uh, maybe a pole shift will occur. Um, you know, the world will just um, just kind of go haywire, like it uh, appears to be doing at the end, end of this uh, fourth world. Well, the 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 path of the two hearts, as you say, with the technology, the dependency on technology, uh, nothing that a good solar storm couldn't fix. <laughs> yeah, that's right. They're exactly right. Uh, you know, we we would be helpless. We'd be thrown back to the you know at least the 19th century or before if this if this actually happened. And you know, some of the Hopis, you know, it's a real divided kind of situation up on the Hopi mesas because some of the Hopis are trying to embrace the new technology, and you know, it's it's some of the ways are uh, make it easier on on them. Uh, but some of the villages still have uh, no running water and. Uh, and no electricity, so it's kind of a mixed bag up there. And the Hopi are are, are fragmented, like a lot of Native American tribes. Uh, they're desperately trying to hold on to their traditions and hold on to their language. But um, there are signs that uh, this is uh, the end of the the fourth world is coming because a lot of the young people don't learn the Hopi language anymore. So uh, you know the. The traditions are being lost, and uh, the elders, uh, the original elders that perform these ceremonies are are dying off. Uh, Grandfather Martin is in his 90s right now, and, uh, you know, a lot of these elders have lived to over 100, so... Um, but they're they're slowly uh, passing on, and uh, there's really... There is no one to replace them, uh, or very few people to replace them uh, at, uh, at Hopi, so... Uh, it's it's a real tenuous uh, and uh, tentative time uh, for the Hopi and for the world at large. Gary David, author of The Orion Zone, Ancient Star Cities of the American Southwest, here on The Conspiracy Show. Quick time out when we come back. We'll get into some uh, of the Hopi star lore and also talk about giants. And we'll also get into the, uh, the Anasazi Indians and uh, some evidence suggesting perhaps... Uh, that uh, cannibalism may have been practiced in the American Southwest 
in uh, prehistoric times. Back with more right here on the all-new AM740 Zuma Radio. Stay with us. Exploring theories, uncovering facts, and offering a different view of the universe. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zuma Radio, AM 740. The world is being pulled over your eyes. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. To reach Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Coming up at midnight, Nick Redfern will drop by to discuss Area 51, Hangar 18, the Montauk facility, other uh, secret places governments don't want us to know about. That's Midnight with Nick Redfern. Right now, Gary David stays with us, author of The Orion Zone, Ancient Star Cities of the American Southwest, and also uh, The Kivas of Heaven, Ancient Hopi Star Lore, and um, I guess previous to that, it was Eye of the Phoenix, Mysterious Visions and Secrets of the American Southwest. Uh, sort of a, a trilogy, if you will. Uh, now, just getting back to the Hopi prophecy, and you mentioned you know, uh, having the earth having gone through three previous cataclysmic events. Um, if memory serves, did the Hopi not um, survive those cataclysms uh, by sort of uh, evacuating to some underground uh, lair or, or cavern of some sort? Uh, yes, the, um, the Hopi survived the uh, destruction of the first world. And that they say that was destroyed by fire, uh, maybe some kind of, uh, like we said, uh, coronal mass ejection, something like that, uh, or it might have been uh, some kind of asteroid strike, or you know, there there was fire involved in in the destruction of the first world, uh, in the destruction of the second world or or era, we should say. This is a unit of time. Uh, they were destroyed by ice, so it, it's probably a a great um, a great ice age uh, descended upon the earth. Uh, the third uh, destruction was by uh, a great floods, and of course there are flood myths all over the all over the earth. And um, it's it's interesting that the Hopi were saved uh, twice during the first and second worlds the, the, that that those cataclysms by what is called the they call it the ant people. Yes, uh, the ant people, um, you know, uh, s- supposedly had uh, antenna because you can, you know, I've seen petroglyphs, rock carvings of these creatures uh, in the American South. They had antenna, kind of spindly bodies. They were, they looked really, you know, they were humanoid, but they looked uh, like insects. You know, they had large, um, large heads and and large eyes, and. Um, you know that that the Hopi were saved by these ant people because they took them down into caverns. Um, uh, in the Grand Canyon, there are many caverns in the Grand Canyon, and um, they took them down there and they survived this this uh, time of transition between worlds. And the ant people showed them how to sprout beans, and they have a, a what's called a bean dance or pawamu. Uh, on the Hopi reservation every year, uh, about this time of year in February, and uh, they they commemorate this time that the ant people um, showed them how to uh, survive in this underworld uh, 
uh, setting until it was safe to come up uh, to the surface of the Earth. So, yeah, the uh, the um, the Hopi were survive, you know, uh, helped by these ant creatures, uh, these ant-like creatures. And what is your your perception of that particular legend, uh, uh, Gary? Do you think that it's rooted in some kernel of truth, or were they using it as a metaphor? What what do you think was going on with these ant people? Well, the, the Hopi are very, um, you know, the, the idea of different sorts of creatures like ant people, um, uh, there are snake people, the Hopi have legends of snake people, uh, and of course the whole uh, idea of kachinas. Now, kachinas are very important in the, in the Hopi, uh, the whole Hopi uh, culture. The kachinas are um, uh, masked dancers, uh, the, the kachina dances are performed uh, in the uh, spring and early summer every year in the village plaza. And the, the kachinas wear these masks of, of various sorts. They're, they're, uh, you know, they might be cylindrical or dome-shaped, or you know, they, they might have bug eyes, or they might have slits for eyes. And sometimes they look like, almost look like space helmets, uh, these, these kachina uh, masks. And uh, supposedly, these represent the spirit messengers, uh, these intermediary um, creatures, uh, kind of between uh, humans and, and the gods. So they're, they're kind of analogous to angels. We, we think of angels as, as being kind of go-betweens between uh, God and, uh, and the human realm. So, uh, you know, the, the Hopi have these uh, similar things. Some of your listeners might be familiar with the Kachina dolls that you can purchase now. Originally, the Kachina dolls were carved in order to teach the children the uh, the various spirit messengers, the various types, because there are literally hundreds of different types of Kachinas, and it's a very confusing kind of thing if they don't have a, a doll to look at. And, and, right, and almost like the, um, the, the Hindu pantheon of gods. Uh, I oh, mean, there's definitely. one for every sort of natural phenomenon, whether it's thunderstorms or... Uh, you know the sun, the stars, wind, insects. Um, there's a there's a there's a, a spirit being for every one of those, and and also similar to the sort of the Greek pantheon and the Hindu pantheon, in that they, from what I understand, would intermingle or commingle, if you will, with with humans, uh, have children with humans. Oh yeah, there there are legends uh, of uh, Hopi legends of these um, beings, these kachinas piloting these uh, round spacecraft, they call them flying shields, or pa'atuvota, uh, they come down from the skies and they, they have legends of uh, these kachinas taking Hopi brides and uh, mating with these, uh, these Hopi women. So, you know, this, this whole tradition of these spirit beings is, is, uh, is you know, very familiar with the Hopi and, and the, like the ant creatures, the ant people, uh, you know, it's, um, it's just part of the whole uh, legendary lore. Now, whether they're, you know, material creatures uh, that came down in nuts and bolts flying saucers, it's hard to say. They might be uh, interdimensional beings that the Hopi interacted with and, and still interact with uh, today. Well, there is, a, um, of course, a, um, uh, several verses in the Old Testament and also, I believe, in the sort of the lost book of, of Enoch, which is not in, in, a part of the Old Testament, talking about, uh, in this case, they, were, they referenced them as sort of fallen angels uh, commingling with the daughters of men, producing this race of Nephilim, 
which were basically uh, a race of giants. And um, I know that their giants are, are very much a part of uh, the lore of the American Southwest. We can get into that uh, when we come back on the other side, if, if we can, Dave, uh, Gary. Uh, Gary David is uh, with us here on The Conspiracy Show, and uh, we'll get right back into it. Again, discussing giants, kachinas, ant people, cannibalism. Back with more. Stay with us. When you look at the sky, ever wonder if someone's looking back? This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Coming up on future episodes of The Conspiracy Show, we'll uh, speak with the author of a a new book uh, about Abraham Lincoln and his assassin, or uh, sort of an alternative take on who may have been responsible for the death of Abraham Lincoln. It's called Who Killed Abraham Lincoln? We'll get to that, of course, uh, uh, President Lincoln's uh, birthday coming up uh, next week. And uh, we'll also, uh, speaking of ancient American, uh, we'll speak with a uh, um, a Frank Joseph, who um, had a long-standing association with that particular publication and um, uh, also knows uh, quite a bit about the American Southwest, but um, we'll find out what Frank Joseph's been up to when uh, he joins us uh, next week on the program. Much more coming up. Uh, Victor Vigiani will uh, will drop by towards the end of the month to talk about CIA mind control in Hollywood as it pertains to the UFO issue. He touched on that uh, a couple of weeks ago when we spoke with Richard Dolan, uh, but we'll get into that in a little more depth. Uh, with uh, Victor. Right now, uh, back with uh, my conversation with Gary David, independent researcher, author, uh, a trilogy, really, of the Orion Zone, Ancient Star Cities of the American Southwest, uh, The Eye of the Phoenix, Mysterious Visions and Secrets of the American Southwest, and the latest, The Kivas of Heaven, Ancient Hopi Star Lore. Uh, Gary, we were talking about uh, giants in uh, in uh, the American Southwest uh, legends. Now, uh, getting back to my question regarding um, whether there's any a potential possible relationship between uh, the Kachina legend and the fact that they commingled with humans producing offspring and these uh, legends of giants. Uh, sure. Yeah. The uh, before we uh, go on to that, um, the, the ant creatures we were talking about, or the ant people. It's interesting that the Hopi word for ant is Anu, and the Hopi word for friend is Naki. So if you put these two uh-huh. together, we have the Anunnaki. That's the yes. very same word, the Sumerian word, that these these creatures that came down from, from the sky, the, some call them watchers, you know. Uh, the uh, book of Genesis talks about these uh, sons of God mating with the daughters of men and uh, producing these giants giants on the earth or giants in the earth. Uh, so the, these Nephilim, as, as you uh, mentioned, uh, it's interesting that the, the the word Nephilim in the Aramaic also means those that are of the constellation Orion. So, oh. you know, um, it's uh, both a Hebrew word and an Aramaic word. The nef- Nephilia is the actual word, those that are of the constellation Orion. So they, they might have a specific uh, origin uh, that we can pin down by this by this one word. 
And, uh, of course, you've pointed out, we'll get into this in a little bit, though, the, the how many of the ancient star cities of the American Southwest are aligned with different, uh, uh, well, with the, the Orion constellation. Exactly. That's the, the uh, focus of my first book. It's, uh, it's kind of like the, um, the pattern that you see on the Giza Plateau, that the belt stars of Orion uh, mirror uh, the uh, uh, positioning of the three major pyramids, in, in Egypt. Um, I found the same thing here in Arizona. The Hopi live on three primary mesas and they're strung out from east to west. Uh, and there are about um, 13 villages scattered uh, upon these mesas and at the base of the mesas. But uh, this is the center of their world, the, these three primary mesas. And, um, you know, I thought, you know, I had just read Robert Bavall's book, The Orion Mystery. Mm -hmm. yes. uh, this was back in 1997. And, um, you know, I thought, well, maybe there's, there's an Orion correlation right here in Arizona, you know. And I just kind of put it uh, at the back of my mind. I was going up to see uh, the Hopi up there and, and watch some of the Kachina dances. But when I got home, I got out the sky chart and I got out a map of Arizona and I found out there was a major ruin site or inhabited Hopi village that corresponded to each major star in the constellation Orion and the pattern was just perfect uh, the sky matched the earth uh, or the earth matched the sky perfectly and I thought well there must be something to this uh, there's too many coincidences here to uh, to to say that you know it's it's just a, a major uh, mass coincidence you know there must be something to this this pattern and um, I so I started to research this and um, for for the Hopi the the constellation Orion is the most important constellation uh, in their in their uh, philosophy and and uh, religion um, it more or less synchronizes the winter solstice ceremony. Um, the Hopi gather on December 21st down in uh, subterranean Kiva, which is an underground communal prayer chamber, and they they do their ceremony down there. But uh, the start of the ceremony, they they can see Orion and the overhead hatchway. Um, the, you know, there's a ladder going down into the subterranean chamber, and when they see the constellation Orion uh, in this hatchway, they know that they're supposed to start this very important winter solstice ceremony which is you know a, a solar ceremony but it starts in the middle of the night with uh, with Orion with Orion's appearance so um, it's it's I think uh, Orion is uh, is very important to the Hopi people and uh, they try to perhaps memorialize uh, the place of their uh, the origin of their star beings uh, the star elders that came down from uh, from the sky, these kachinas that came down on these flying shields and interacted with the Hopi people. That's that's my best guess why this pattern exists here in Arizona. That's fascinating, the fact that it also parallels what's going on in Egypt. All these different ancient civilizations are leaving us these clues saying, look up there. That's where they came from. Oh, sure, yeah. There's a lot of uh, parallels between uh, uh, Egyptian and Hopi culture. The uh, the duat of the... Uh, 
of the Egyptians, uh, the underworld place that um, that you go after death, is is very similar to the Hopi conception of the underworld, uh, going down into this place. We uh, talked about going down into caverns. Uh, that's um, that's very strong in Hopi uh, Hopi philosophy and uh, cosmology. Um, in fact, the Hopi word tuat, or uh, very similar to the, the Egyptian duat, means hallucination or mystic vision. So it's kind of like, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the mystic visions that you see uh, while traversing the underworld. Uh, it's, it's a very similar uh, uh, whole cosmology uh, system of, of belief that's, that's going on between the two cultures. I want to get back to uh, the discussion of, of giants uh, in um, uh, Hopi uh, lore. And I mentioned uh, Frank Joseph earlier, who was mm-hmm. editor-in-chief of Ancient American Mag- Magazine. I know you've contributed to that um, publication. Mm-hmm. And I, I believe it was a, a, a Frank who told me this, uh, that, uh, you know, we've all seen that sort of the, it's become sort of a stereotypical greeting in, the, in those horrible westerns where, uh, you know, um, um, one Indian will raise his uh, palm um, up and say, how? And uh, uh, Frank said, well, the origin of that had to do uh, with, it was a, it was a way of um, uh, a Native American telling from a safe distance uh, by counting the digits on a stranger's hands when he raised it in that greeting, uh, whether he had five fingers, which would indicate fully human, or six digits, which might indicate that this person, I guess, would be an offspring uh, if you will, of the uh, of a kachina, or perhaps I mean this person was a giant. Sure. Uh, yeah, that that might be possible. I had I hadn't heard that uh, version before, but uh, definitely um, there there is evidence. There's uh, petroglyph evidence uh, of uh, of of creatures with six toes or six fingers. You, f- you find these in a number of places. Um, there's a place called Chaco Canyon, which was really the largest uh, ruined site in the American Southwest. It, it was a huge complex that started about 850 A.D. and went through the early 1100s. Uh, so it, it, it was a highly developed um, city, basically. It, it was a ceremonial city with huge, huge uh, uh, Pueblo or, or kind of apartment building, uh, stone apartment buildings. In fact, there's a, the major one, Pueblo Bonito, uh, it was the largest apartment building in the world until there was one built in the 1880s in New York City. Wow. So this, the, you know, this was a huge, you know, uh, up to 800 rooms in this in this building, and there were other pueblos nearby that, you know, that, that had uh, quite a few rooms in them. It was a, a major culture uh, that started in the in the ninth century, and they built roads, roadways. Uh, 50 miles north and 50 miles south, these arrow straight roadways going into this city. Um, and they were like 30 feet across. These, and uh, they, they were, went, you know, right over hills and you know, they didn't go around the hills or anything. They just went arrow straight north and south. So you had this, this uh, north-south axis leading into this ceremonial city. 
Uh, and um, it was uh, quite quite something uh, for its time. It was a major uh, complex. Just imagining a, a Hopi arriving late for work, and uh, you know the boss looking at him and says, "I'm sorry, the traffic was terrible." <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I think they they it was a ceremonial city because they haven't found that many burials there. So I think people went periodically during ceremony time to the city, and then they went back to their homes in the outlying areas. Right, right. And it's interesting that, you know, they found these petroglyphs with six toes right behind this Pueblo Bonito, um, a, a couple different pet petroglyphs that clearly show more than five toes. And there are other petroglyphs in the area that, that show, um, you know, five fingers. And there's even been, archaeologists have found in this Pueblo Bonito, they actually found a, um, a, a foot bone with six toes in it, uh, on it. So, uh, you know, the, uh, there was actually a, a, you know, a person, a creature living there at Pueblo Bonito that had, that had these six digits. Would they be able to tell, um, well, they should be able to tell, just basically based on the size of the, the, the foot bone, or the bone, many bones in a foot, but based on that, how tall this, this creature would have been? Well, they, they've done studies on the size of, of the bones in, at Pueblo Bonito, and they've determined that these are the largest bones that they've found in the American Southwest. All the other uh, uh, skeletons were uh, much smaller. These creatures that lived at Pueblo Bonito were, were tall. Now, they're not 11-foot giants or anything like that, but they, they might have been over six feet, uh, maybe six five, and when you consider that the average height of a um, a Native American back in the um, in the tenth century may have been five feet tall, maybe five foot two for a male and under five feet for a female. So um, these these um, creatures living or people or giants or whatever you want to call them living at Pueblo Bonito uh, a clearly um, they were uh, they were taller than the rest uh, of the outlying population that lived outside the the big city, so to speak. Uh, so um, you know, there's there's evidence of this. Um, there's also evidence of um, different uh, different types of uh, iron uh, percentages in the bones. There was a, a, a really a, a major problem in during this period of iron deficiency anemia. Hmm. Um, the, um, the people at Pueblo Bonito, it was about 25% uh, of the people at Pueblo Bonito had this uh, iron deficiency anemia. And this is a lack of protein and lack of meat. However, the outlying areas, it was upwards to 80% of the people had this disease. Well, it's interesting because the Hopi, I guess they were somewhat strategic in, you mentioned these mesas they lived on, but they, they chose some, some of the most inhospitable, inaccessible areas, which turned out to be kind of a, a stroke of genius because, you know, they weren't sort of, you know, wiped out or taken over the way many other Indian nations were. Exactly, yeah. The, the Hopi... Um, had a strategy of um, going back into the hills, so to speak, and, uh, and just trying to hide out and away from the major uh, areas of development. Unlike the uh, Sioux, for instance, or the Lakota in South Dakota that were, you know, right at the heart of the, uh, the American gold rush. 
uh, and that's that's why they were confronted uh, in the uh, in the 19th century. But the Hopi uh, took a different strategy. They just kind of hid out in these places that nobody else wanted, very far from uh, major sources of water. They relied on uh, intermittent springs uh, for their water and runoffs. So uh, most of the the sites in Arizona, in fact, are away from uh, major rivers. So, uh, and Chaco Canyon is the same way. It's, uh, it's, if you've ever been out there, it's a very desolate canyon. There's an intermittent wash that goes through there, but it's nothing, uh, nothing steady like a river would be. And uh, the, the nearest river is, is over 50 miles away. So, you know, they, they purposely sought out these uh, inhospitable places uh, to live. And I think part of the reason they did that was, you know, this whole pattern that, that was established, uh, you know, beginning in um, around 850 with, uh, with Chaco Canyon and this star pattern that was projected on the American Southwest. Almost living this hermetic life. Oh, yeah. And then the Hopi are like that. They're very, uh, you know, very polite, humble people. Uh, they're, they're called the people of peace. They're, um, they're not warriors like uh, some of the uh, Plains Indian tribes. Um, so uh, they, they took a different tact in, in, uh, in trying to survive. Gary David is uh, with us here on The Conspiracy Show, AM 740, Zuma Radio, author of The Orion Zone, Ancient Star Cities of the American Southwest, Eye of the Phoenix, Mysterious Visions and Secrets of the American Southwest, and The Kivas of Heaven, Ancient Hopi Star Lore. Uh, we'll, um, we'll take a time out, and uh, when we come back, let's talk a little bit, a little bit about the uh, Anasazi Indians, uh, where they existed in, uh, in place and time, and uh, also uh, we'll get into a discussion, uh, kind of controversial, uh, about the practice of cannibalism in the American Southwest. All that coming up when we return. Stay with us. This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Nick Redfern will join us in about 20 minutes' time to discuss top secret places. Those secret military bases governments around the world don't want us to know about. Area 51, Hangar 18, the Montauk facility, etc. We'll get into that. Uh, Gary David stays with us discussing... Uh, legends and lore of the American Southwest and the uh, and its inhabitants, the Hopis. And uh, well, who were the um, the Anasazi Indians, uh, Gary? The Anasazi were simply the pre um, pre Pueblo uh, Indians. Um, they are basically the same people as the Hopi and and the uh, the Zuni and the Laguna and the other Pueblo people uh... that live in the american southwest the navajo on the other hand are uh... migrated down from uh, from the north and and archaeologists say they came down about fifteen hundred a.d. into this area but uh... the anasazi is actually a navajo word it means ancient enemy and um... the um... the hopi really don't like this the word to that refers to their ancestors. They, the, the Hopi call their ancestors the Hizatsinom, or simply the ancient ones. 
Um, the, the, the Navajo word means ancient enemy. So, um, you know, uh, basically the Anasazi are, are uh, it's a term to refer to the ancestors of the Hopi and the other Pueblo people in the Southwest. But they were more of a warring civilization? Oh, no, no. no? The, the, the Anasazi, uh, you know, um, did some warfare, and there's recently been uh, some uh, anthropologists and archaeologists, you know, c- kind of promoting this this theory that um, the um, the Anasazi were not totally peaceful, as, um, you know, as the people of peace or the Hopi, uh, you know, like to call themselves. But, you know, there are different theories about, you know, who they were and the extent of warfare in the area. I think a lot of there was a lot of mixing going on um, of different groups. Um, it's my belief that um, a group, uh, maybe a pre-Aztec group, um, maybe the Toltecs, or a, a group called the Chichimex, came up um, in this area, and they were more warlike. And they kind of, it's my belief that they kind of took over at places like Chaco Canyon in northwestern New Mexico and kind of uh, institute a terror campaign almost. They, um, because the Hopi refer to Chaco Canyon as a place of sorcery, a place of witchcraft, and, uh, you know, just um, this is where these, these tall uh, giants lived, you know, at Pueblo Bonito. Uh, so you know that that the Hopi kind of um, disavow the fact that you know, that um, there was cannibalism that or that their ancestors uh, participated in cannibalism. Uh, it might have been another group that came into this area and uh, kind of uh, dominated the region for a while. So you believe that the cannibalism may have been actually. Uh, practiced by the, the, this uh, group, the Chichimex that came up, or some yeah, it's other my, it's, Yeah, it's my belief that uh, the, uh, the Chichimex were called the sons of the dog. And in this, uh, or, uh, this star correlation uh, theory, um, the, the uh, site of Chaco Canyon corresponds to the star Sirius, which is the dog star. So it all kind of falls into place. These dog people, that um, their symbol was the bow and arrow, and there are many bow-shaped buildings uh, at Chaco Canyon. The the architecture is is kind of a a, a curve like a bow. So um, it's it's my belief that the Chichimex uh, lived there, or uh, the Bow Clan lived there. Uh, at Chaco Canyon and kind of dominated the, the, the scene there for, for quite a while. And what, what evidence uh, is there uh, that suggests cannibalism may have been uh, practiced? Okay, there's um, a, a couple um, different sites in the area. There's a, a site called Cowboy Wash. It's, it's right in, very close to the Four Corners area. And uh, archaeologists have found that... Um, uh, coprolites, which uh, are fossilized feces, uh, contain they they contain human myoglobin, and this human myoglobin only exists in human flesh. So, this this feces, the person who who produced this, this feces, this fossilized feces, uh, undoubtedly consumed human flesh, and you know we can we can see that by the by the level of human myoglobin 
in these in these feces. So there's definite evidence. Uh, there's an anthropologist named Christy Turner. He's um, at um, Arizona State University. He came out with a book uh, oh, about a dozen years ago, and it's called Man Corn. It's an Aztec term that uh, really means you know corn mixed with human flesh. And um, the um, he 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 states that you know he's found uh, osteological evidence with bones. He he's examined many bones that look like they've been processed. Uh, for food consumption, um, not just uh, ripped apart by coyotes or, you know, uh, they, they've actually been, you know, he's found evidence of uh, what he calls pot polishing, uh, that, that they put these bones in a pot and the, the ends of the bones have this, this shiny polish on, on the ends that, that say they've been stewed in these, in these pots, these uh, clay pots. So, uh, you know, he's, he's got a lot of evidence uh, from bones that have been found in the American Southwest that suggests that there has been uh, cannibalism in the area. Now, I mean, there have been, uh, you know, cannibalism has been practiced under, uh, you know, extreme conditions everywhere. You know, a jetliner crashes on top of the Andes, yeah. uh, a, uh, you know, a, uh, a cavalry unit, uh you know, is stranded, uh, suffers through a severe winter. Apparently there were reports of, of cannibalism. Are we talking about isolated incidents, or is there anything to suggest that this was a widespread cultural practice? Well, I mentioned uh, this iron deficiency anemia at uh, Chaco Canyon. And, of course, the, the people at Pueblo Bonito had the lowest uh, percentage of this. Um, and Pueblo Bonito and Chaco Canyon, um, there wasn't a lot of uh, meat uh, available. There weren't, there weren't uh, deer or elk to any great degree. And if they were, they were hunted out in the, in the first century or two of the Pueblo's existence. And so the people had to um, survive on maybe uh, rodents, uh, rabbits, uh, squirrels, chipmunks, and so forth. Uh, that was the only really source of protein. But these people at this one Pueblo had this very low rate of iron deficiency anemia. And the people on the outside living, you know, miles away from the, this Pueblo had a much higher rate, up to 80% in the outlying areas. So the people living in this city, this Pueblo, uh, had to get their protein somewhere. And... Um, there have been uh, evidence of uh, cannibalism right right in Chaco Canyon, but bones, like I say, uh, have been lo look like they have been prepared to, for human consumption. These uh, the the flesh on the bones. So, well, it was, it was uh, interesting, uh, Gary. Earlier, you mentioned that uh, there this settlement uh, at Chaco Canyon didn't. It seemed to be more of a uh, a religious destination. Uh, there didn't seem to be many burials, and maybe that's because, you know, people who died there were consumed. Maybe that's the truth. You know, uh, that's that's a, a good point. Uh, it's a. Um, some believe that um, these this group from Chaco Canyon went around to the outlying areas and and demanded tributes of food and and uh, artifacts and so forth from the people and you know if they didn't give them what they wanted they they ate them so you know maybe that's that's one theory that uh, 
you know, it was a pretty rough period and uh, very unlike the way the Hopi live today. Or and the Hopi, of course, disavow any any um, knowledge of this this whole thing. They they say no, we're we're not cannibals. We've never been cannibals. Well, that's a, uh, that's still a, a a taboo subject. Let's face it. And oh, yeah. uh, it very, must be it's a very controversial area of research. I would imagine you'd have to tread very lightly. Oh yeah, and uh, you know, uh, Christy Turner has come under a lot of fire from, from the various uh, pueblos uh, in the area, and uh, you know he's taken a lot of heat for this, this um, evidence. But you know there clearly is evidence that this was taking place, uh, perhaps not on, on a massive scale, but it, it, ha- it was uh, taking place, and the center, the epicenter of this uh, this whole thing was was Chaco Canyon. How many uh, how many Hopi um, are alive today? I mean, is the is uh, is it a, uh, a a dying culture? I mean, I know I know that that, that some of the traditionalists are are, uh, are you know are dying out, getting old, and and others aren't taking up the mantle. But just the the the, the whole way of life. I mean, how many Hopi? Are there still living out on these mesas, eking out yeah. an existence? Uh, there are about eleven thousand. The population is about eleven thousand now, and um, there are uh, a dozen villages or so uh, that they live on, and some are more traditional and um, than the others. Some have electricity. It's kind of funny. You can go to a, uh, up to Hopi and and see uh, on an old stone house, you can see a solar panel. You know, stuck on the top of it. So uh, you know, it's a it's a kind of a mixed a mixed uh, bag up there because uh, the Hopi uh, you know believe that they're at the end of this world and they're just trying to hang on to what they have. One of the few uh, Indian nations I understand that hasn't uh, embraced the uh, the casino. Oh, exactly. Yeah, the Hopi voted uh, voted that down. The Navajo. Uh, recently got a casino in New Mexico, and another one's come, coming in in Arizona. But the Hopi uh, are staunchly against uh, any kind of gambling. You know. How are you um, uh, perceived by the uh, the Hopi elders, I guess, as a non-Hopi? Well, you know, I uh, go up there with respect. I, I watch the dances, and I talk to... Uh, to uh, some of the elders up there, uh, Grandfather Martin, uh, I've talked to quite a bit, and uh, he's uh, taken me out to a prophecy rock and talked about the prophecy rock I mentioned earlier. So, uh, you know, a lot of Hopis, um, again, it's a mixture of responses. Um, some don't like um, the uh, non-Hopis to write about their culture at all. They, they think that only Hopi could do that. Uh, others feel that we're so close to the end of the fourth world that this must, this must get out. This, these prophecies that, that the Hopi have come forth with, it must be brought to the world and brought um, on the internet and so forth uh, before before the the final uh, the final passing of this age. What did what do the Hopi prophecies say about? The, the dying of the fourth age or the fourth world. I mean, what is the prophecy? How will, we go, how will the fourth world go out? Uh, the, the, the fourth world is going out with fire, uh, some kind of uh, uh, caustic uh, destruction of the earth. Uh, um, and uh, there are a lot of signs 
that different Hopi elders have brought forth. For instance, um, they said that the sea will turn black and all the uh, life in it will die. Well, that just happened uh, uh, the summer before last. So, you know, the, this um, looks like a time where uh, it's it, we're coming to the end of the age. And just like the, you know, the Mayan uh, calendar and December 21st, 2012. Well, the Hopi don't have a specific date. You know, when you ask a Hopi, well, when is this age going to end? They say, well, it's going to end soon or within my lifetime or something like that. That's you, the usual response. But they won't give a date like like the Maya have given. And and how are the, the, the elders uh, preparing? I mean, are they now sort of in a, in a state of perpetual uh, 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 prayer or um, what, what, what are they doing to prepare for the, the, the coming of the end? Well, they're doing what they've always done. They're they're trying to keep this ceremonial cycle going. Um, they're they're going down into their kibas, uh, you know, ed- because there's a lot of preparation for these ceremonies um, that last uh, nine days or so forth uh, each ceremony, uh, and there are nine different ceremonies, and, um, and there's kind of a perpetual preparation for one ceremony or another, and it's it's a really uh, a lot of preparation involved and, and you know some of the younger Hopis have, have day jobs and they've got to do that and then you know uh, learn the Kachina songs and, and keep going with the traditional ways but uh, you know the Hopi are just trying to keep the world in balance that's their that's what they feel that their goal is to keep the earth on its axis by performing these ceremonies if they stop performing the ceremonies then um then they feel that the world will be thrown off its axis. So in other um, words, they're saying that, it, that it's possible to avoid or, or at least forestall the end of the fourth world as long as they can keep this ritual cycle going. Yeah, I think uh, some of the Hopis believe that, you know, we're gonna, it's a rough period now, but we're going to transition into the fifth world, and it will be a world of peace, a world that respects uh, Grandmother Earth and... Uh, the creatures on it, it's um, the one hearts will, will take over and the two hearts will will be destroyed. Uh, basically, they, they feel that the, the earth will be a better place after this, this kind of really rough period that we're going through. Well, uh, the, the, after a long, long silence, my understanding is that uh, the, a Mayan council, I believe, in, in Guatemala uh, spoke out and said that the the concept of uh, you know winter solstice 2012 being the end uh, was sort of twisting the uh, the prophecy and that it it simply meant the end of one age and sort of a resetting of the calendar if you will uh, but that there will be this this period of of, of renewal and, and and change whatever that might mean uh, but you're saying that the Hopi the Hopi prophecy is, is quite clear, in the, and that is that we are going to go out with a bang, not a whimper. Well, I think that um, we will survive. The, the Hopi, uh, you know, have gone through three different destructions of the world before, and they've made it through. And I think they believe that as we enter the fifth world, it's going to be it's going to be hard, but we're going to make it. Um, like Grandfather Martin just told me last summer, uh, in a group of us in front of Prophecy Rock, he said you have to keep going. That's that's the uh, 
and, and he seemed really upbeat in his uh i've seen him before and he wasn't so upbeat but uh recently he's he was really uh had some good news and said you have to keep going it, it the new world is coming and and just keep keep on with what you're doing and uh it, it will turn out in the end okay uh, especially if you if you uh, respect the the ways of the creator and uh and uh, live a life that's in uh, congruence with uh, uh, the ways of Mother Earth and so forth. So I, I think you know there's there's some some good news and good good feelings about uh, the coming age. How has this uh, shaped your personal uh, worldview, Gary? I mean, you're 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 a researcher. I mean, I know you probably maybe step back and try to be objective about it, but maybe not. Maybe you've been influenced. This maybe you 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 believe uh, what the Hopi elders are saying. Oh, I, I yeah, def- definitely do believe that there is a transitional period, and we're we're in these these final final days, and you see signs. Uh, of of this uh, all over the place. Uh, one of the signs of the prophecy was um, the 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 light of divine wisdom will uh, will erupt uh, in in war. That means the the land that first had this divine wisdom will erupt in war. And so this might be the Middle East. Might you know look at the Arab Spring and so forth. Uh, these these places are really erupting in a lot of uh, conflict. And war, and um, they said that during this end time, that uh, you know, these the lands that first had this divine wisdom will will be rocked back and forth uh, with uh, with uh, war, and there'll be a, a great fire and, and uh, eruption. So you know, it's it's hard to say what what we're going to see, but the Hopi uh, that I've talked to, especially Grandfather Martin, says that. You know, he's very optimistic about uh, the coming age. And and does Grandfather Martin talk about again, sort of uh, this um, escape plan, retreating into the bowels of the earth, perhaps with the assistance of the ant people? Well, you know, he talks about the ant people a lot, and uh, you know, uh, this also has to do with uh, the lost city in the Grand Canyon that has been talked about by some people. Um, I don't know if your listeners are familiar with this this whole story that uh, in 1909, a uh, a man named G.E. Kincaid uh, was working for the Smithsonian, and he went down the Colorado River on on a boat, and he found this cavern uh, in the side of Grand Canyon, and it's like 1,500 feet above the river, and he climbed up to it with great difficulty, uh, he said. And when he went into this cavern, uh, he found these tunnels going horizontally into the side of Grand Canyon. And these tunnels were huge. They could hold hundreds of people. And um, they had a, um, a dining hall, and they found a bun- he found a bunch of artifacts, different types of copper swords and, and uh, so forth. And uh, he also found... Uh, Egyptian mummies stacked up against the wall of this one room, uh, just uh, laid out, you know, sitting against the wall, propped up against the wall. 
of this one room, and then he found a statue of Buddha in a lotus position there. My word. Uh, and, you know, all these artifacts that he found. Uh, and uh, I did. I read that in World Explorer. Uh, sure, yeah. yeah years David ago. Childress yes. has, has written about that yes. quite a bit. And uh, um, it was published in the Phoenix Gazette, and it's a 1909 issue of the Phoenix Gazette. And, um, so the idea being that uh, all these uh, different ancient peoples had gathered together in these underground caverns uh, to escape the, uh, the cataclysm. I, you know, I think that's true. That's part of the Hopi uh, legend, but it might involve other cultures like the Egyptians or um, there are you know, documents uh, from, um, from the Far East as well uh, of Chinese coming over here and... Um, and actually seeing giants in uh, in a place they call the Luminous Canyon, which might be the Grand Canyon. So there's a, there might be a, a confluence of, of people coming to this area in the in the Southwest to escape a certain uh, destruction of the world. Fascinating, uh, Gary, and a real delight to speaking with you again. What's uh, coming up next for you? Well, I'm working on a fourth book. It's an extension of uh, the Star Correlation Theory, and uh, I found a lot of different interesting facts about uh, uh, star beings from a particular star in Orion that um, corresponds to a place called the Hopi, the Hopi called the Sipapuni, which is a place that they emerged from the bottom of Grand Canyon. So um, I'm working on a new book. Uh, you can... Uh, read more about it on theorionzone.com. Uh, I have a website with quite a few articles you can download for free and more information on the book. And I've uh, linked up to your site uh, on my homepage at richardserrett.com. So you just uh, go to that homepage and click on uh, Gary David's name, and that'll take you right to uh, theorionzone.com. Uh, Gary, a great pleasure. Thank you for this. Well, thank you, Richard. I enjoyed it. Likewise. Talk again soon, I hope. Take care. Gary David. All right, when we come back, we'll check in with Nick Redfern, who's keeping his eyes wide open on the, uh, the secret military bases. We're all familiar, of course, with Area 51 and, and Hangar 18 and the Montauk facility and uh, many, many more. Keep Out, the name of his latest book. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. And you can follow me at twitter.com forward slash Richard Serrett. Twitter.com forward slash Richard Serrett. And the last name is spelled S as in Simon, Y-R-E-T-T. S-Y-R-E-T-T. Twitter.com forward slash Richard Serrett. 
And, of course, the website, richardserrett.com. And the new website is theconspiracyshow.com. And you can access both the TV show and the radio show, uh, all the information right there, theconspiracyshow.com. Uh, Area 51, Hangar 18, the Montauk facility, the undersea world of Sonia, Harp in Alaska, Pine Gap, Fort Detrick, the Zitker Underground Realm. These are just a few of the select, highly classified installations about which governments of the United States, Australia, China, Russia, uh, the United Kingdom, others would prefer we know nothing about. And now we'll know a lot more uh, thanks to my next guest. Nick Redfern works full-time as an author, lecturer, journalist. He writes about a wide range of subjects, including Bigfoot, UFOs, paranormal phenomena, He's a regular contributor to UFO magazine Fate and Fortean Times. He's appeared on many television shows, including the History Channel's Monster Quest, the National Geographic Channel's Paranatural, and the Sci-Fi Channel's Proof Positive. He's, his previous books include The NASA Conspiracies, Contactees, and The Real Men in Black. He lives in Arlington, Texas, and his website is www.nickredfern.com. Nick, how are you? Hey, Richard. I'm doing good, thanks. How's it going? Very well, thank you. Good to have you good. back. Last time we spoke, you had just released The Real Men in Black. Yeah, that's right. Last year, last summer. Well, uh, congratulations on uh, the release of Keep Out, Secret Places Governments thanks. Don't Want You to Know About. How did you, uh, how did you become uh, involved in researching these secret military bases? Well, you know, I think more than anything else, you know, the... The one thing, you know, you mentioned at the beginning when you were sort of doing the introduction about, you know, everybody knows about Area 51. Um, and what I wanted to do really was to sort of demonstrate to people that, you know, it's not sort of just a study of military bases per se. You know, I, I don't sort of get into, you know, sort of regular historical or military conspiracies as such. But what I wanted to do was to demonstrate to people that these stories about UFO links to secret installations with which Area 51 is certainly the most well-known, but to demonstrate to people that, you know, contrary to popular belief, Area 51 wasn't sort of a standalone location. You know, certainly it's the most famous secret installation or off-limits installation with a UFO link, but you can find many more all around the world. So that was kind of the, the motivation, was to, you know, show people, you know, in uh, what, what's going on in other countries that, you know, the, I guess... You know, Russia's Area 52, England's Area 53, that sort of thing. Right, know. right. Well, I mean, so much has been uh, has been written, and there's been so much speculation about what goes on at Area 51. What 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 do you think is going on there? I mean, are they uh, are they simply mm. testing uh, advanced uh, weaponry of all sorts, or is it possible they're back engineering uh, alien spacecraft? Well, this is the big question, and I think why, you know, Area 51 has really become not just sort of a, a big thing within the UFO research realm, but also within popular culture. You know, it's been on, on everything from the X-Files to Independence Day and just about anything else. Now, what we know for certain is that over the years, a lot of highly classified um, aircraft um, research has been undertaken. It's where, for example, the U-2 spy plane was test flown and then the SR-71 Blackbird in the 60s. And in the late 70s through the 80s, it's where a lot of the early stealth technology was developed and test flown that ultimately, you know, turned into the stealth fighter and the stealth bomber. Now, of course, that's sort of just regular but classified aircraft programs. Of course, the thing that really thrust Area 51 into the public domain is this whole issue of 
you know, the, the idea that they're storing crashed or recovered UFOs there, which are being sort of reverse engineered. Now, what's interesting, you know, is that the people who've made these claims, for the most part, are speaking on the record. The problem, of course, is validating the stories when you don't have, you know, sort of the literal piece of metal or whatever from some crashed UFO, uh, if it even exists in the first place. Now, certainly there's absolutely no doubt that, you know, the, the story of Area 51 wouldn't have gained the sort of notoriety that it has without a man named Bob Lazar. Yes. Bob Lazar being a physicist who claimed that in late 1988 he worked out at Area 51, or a part of it called S4. Area 51 is actually just one of a number of areas on what's called the Nevada Test and Training Range, which actually extends to um, literally several thousand square miles in the Nevada desert. And Lazar claimed that there were nine flying saucers. You know, they weren't sort of weirdly-looking shaped UFOs. He said they looked like typical flying saucers, you know, that you would see in the movies. Uh, initially, he thought they were secret aircraft. Then he said that when he got to look inside them, all the seats were really tiny and, you know, the more suited to people, only about three to four feet tall. And kind of the penny dropped then, he said. And um, he said the government had these craft, but they didn't really understand the technology. And so it was just a case of you're kind of looking at them and scratching their heads as to how to power them and get them off the ground even. Now, of course, a lot of people just write off Lazar as a fantasist. What's interesting and why I think, you know, we cannot rule out the idea of something really weird going on at Area 51 is that every time something comes along to sort of really hammer Lazar into the ground, something else comes along that leaves the door wide open. For example, um, he, he claimed that he worked at the Los Alamos labs in the early 1980s on some sort of pretty high-tech and radical programs. When um, Los Alamos staff were contacted by the Los the Nevada media, the comment, they said, no, this is all nonsense. This man's never worked for us. That is until um, George Knapp, a, a journalist and um, in Nevada, in Las Vegas, actually found Lazar's name in the 1982 Los Alamos phone directory. And then Los Alamos said, well, okay, he did work for us. We made a mistake. Now, on top of that, Lazar claimed that he got his... In a roundabout way, he got sort of the introduction to the job by the famous American scientist, Dr. Edward Teller, who was a sort of a, a brilliant Cold War era scientist, you know, involved in a lot of major military programs. Well, he and Oppenheimer um, were sort of father of the joint uh, fathers of the of the, the A-bomb, were they not? Yeah, that's correct, yes. That, that was literally the sort of the, the influence that Teller had. And, you know, you'd imagine if this was complete nonsense and that, Lazar just made this up, Teller would have vigorously denied it and possibly even taken legal action. But when he was sort of put on the spot and confronted by, again, uh, the media in Nevada, he literally squirmed and avoided saying anything. But what he did say was couched in such terms that, you know, it allowed him an, an out, if you like, in case he had to sort of reverse his stance. What he said was along the lines of, well, I don't remember Lazar, I don't remember meeting him, but if I met him and if I liked him, I might have referred him for a job, but I don't remember doing that if I actually did it. <laughs> that was the word he used. <laughs> you know, That's it, very it's guarded, isn't it? It's a convoluted thing where, you know, if, if Teller had no involvement with Lazar, it would have been the easiest and quickest thing to say, this man's lying and I'm going to take legal action to rectify the situation. But he just squirmed and was distinctly uneasy. So it's things like this and... Lazar's name in the phone directory and stuff like that that lead me to believe that, 
you know, Lazar isn't the fantasist that a lot of people make him out to be. But, of course, the big question is, you know, did he see real alien craft or were they still some sort of highly classified, you know, U.S. craft that, you know, they were sort of testing his loyalty by seeing how far he would go with spilling the beans, you know, outside the base about crashed UFOs. And, of course, you know, that... That, that's the one angle, that, the other angle that's been looked at. You know, maybe these were American military craft, and the idea was that, well, you know, we'll tell the guy they're aliens, and if he talks outside of official channels, we'll know he's not trustworthy, and if he does, no real secrets have been compromised. But then on the other hand, it was almost like made so easy for Lazar to see this material. The other argument is that, well, maybe they were real UFO craft, and somebody on the inside wanted somebody like Lazar to spill the beans to test the waters as to how the public might react. So, you know, it's still very much a hall of mirrors sort of 20 years later after Lazar went public even. Uh, I recall a conversation with someone who was stationed uh, near Area 51, I guess, Groom Lake, mm-hmm. uh, as a meteorologist, uh, last name Hall. Uh, does that ring a bell? He Hall. Tom Hall, or no, I don't know that. Name. And anyway, he he told me uh, as a meteorologist uh, stationed there, uh, he encountered a group of aliens that were living essentially on the base. Uh, he called them the Tall Whites. Oh yeah, I've heard those stories. Yeah. Did you? Uh, yeah, there's, there's a lot of stories like that. About I mean, again, it sounds bizarre, but you have a lot of people who've come forward on the record talking about, you know, living aliens out at the base, dead alien bodies. Uh, even Lazar said that at one point he was taken down a corridor in the building and happened to look through a doorway as he was going down because one of the people said, if you look in there, you might see something interesting. And he had sort of a fleeting glance at some guy in like a lab coat, almost like looking down and talking almost to this small figure. Uh, and, but by Lazar's own token, you know, he wondered if that was done deliberately to sort of, again, test him, you know. Um, there are even people, I got, I got a very weird story that I didn't actually include in the book because the person um, just didn't want to go on the record. And I always try and go on the record, but, you know, for what it's worth, he said that his father worked out at Area 51 and had seen sort of weird kind of men in black type out there. Um, you know, the, the sort of very weird looking men in black, these sort of skinny, pale face, emaciated guys in black suits that sort of you know, hover around the fringes of the stranger aspects of the UFO field. And he said they were seen out at Area 51, you know, in in one particular part of the base. So it really sort of does open your eyes to what what could be going on out there. It was a Charles Hall. Uh, That was a meteorologist I mentioned. Oh, okay. Yeah, Yeah, I know this about the tall white. Yes. I mean, that's an interesting one, you know, the idea about these sort of human-looking but, you know, sort of larger-sized human-like aliens, you know, the idea that... Area 51 acts as some sort of spaceport, if you like. And, and of course, I always tell people, you know, we need to be very careful how we filter these stories as to, you know, what they mean and what they imply and, um, you know, understand the difference between what we know goes on there versus what the rumor mill tells us and be careful, you know, as to how we, how we accept data, I, I guess, you know, without validation and, um, and how, we take, how further we can take these stories. Are there still regular flights, uh, I guess, out of, is it McCarran Airport in Las Vegas yes. into Area 51? 
Yeah, I mean, a lot of people have said, oh, the base is shut down or things have moved. Well, no, I mean, the, the installation hasn't shut down. A lot of people think it's in the middle of nowhere, but it's actually only 90 miles from downtown Las Vegas. The problem is, you know, you, you cannot sort of take the roads to uh, Area 51 without getting stopped like 15, 20 miles before you get to the base. And, you know, you'll get turned around, and if you keep going, you can be arrested, etc. But, yeah, I mean, McCarran Air Force Base, excuse me, airport actually has you know, regular flights um, to the base. There's no doubt about that at all. And, um, you know, we can never say things haven't been removed or taken somewhere else. But, I mean, it's still a highly active location to this day. And a lot of stories about sort of underground and, you know, hollowed out areas in the surrounding mountains having been added to, you know, primarily because you have things like Russian and Chinese spy satellites going over. You have things like Google Earth. So one of the stories is that the government's kind of been forced to take its stuff literally more underground, which might, in many respects, explain sort of a lack or lessening of above-surface activity to where some people might think, well, it's gone away. But, you know, you think logically that more and more nations that have got spy satellites, you know, nobody can prevent anybody flying over Area 51 if the satellite's 22,000 miles up in space. You know, there's just nothing you can do about that unless you're prepared to sort of go underground rather than, you know, sort of work above ground. So. How did it get the name Area 51? Well, it's actually a number of, a number of areas. Um, people think, you know, does it mean any, anything significant? It's actually designated by the fact that this huge Nevada Test and Training Range, which is literally like 3,500 square miles, um, it has a number of these areas. And, and Area 51 is just one of those areas and different work is undertaken at different places. And Area 51, because nearby is this huge dry lake bed called Groom Lake, that's why a lot of the classified aircraft programs were undertaken at Area 51, because, you know, essentially this huge dry lake bed was essentially acted as like a huge runway. And it was sort of the perfect location, in other words, to test fly um, sort of radical new spy planes. And, but there are other areas on the test range, you know, where, for example... Things like um, biological warfare has been undertaken and laser weaponry and all sorts of different things. But it's Area 51, with its aviation background, has become sort of inextricably tied with UFOs and, and the one area more than any other that's, that's sort of derived all the publicity. Did you drive out there? And if so, how close did you get? Um, oh, I mean, I've been to sort of within about sort of 20 miles, you know, just to get a token picture and, you know, also to the little alien pub uh, which you can go to there but i mean to be honest there's just really no point going any further because all that will happen is you know you just see a long desert road you see signs which you know you, legally you can you can go that far if you go any further you know you see the guys sitting on the hills in these jeeps and um you know cars various vehicles all-terrain vehicles and if you keep going you know they turn you around and if you keep going then you get arrested so you, it doesn't achieve anything because you're still, even at that point, like eight or nine miles from the base, and there's just nothing to see, you know, because it, the, the way it's constructed and built, you just cannot get close enough to see anything. It's not like you can get up to the base fence or anything like that. So, you know, if you want to say you've been there and you want to get within 10 miles, 15 miles of it, that's fine, but unfortunately, you know, we've... To get information, we're reliant on the people who work there. Actually going to the base doesn't really achieve anything other than to say, 
I was there sort of thing, you know, but you were actually sort of 15 miles away. So. Well, and uh, other than Bob Lazar, not a whole lot of uh, whistleblowers uh, sort of spilling the beans on what's going on uh, at well, Area 51. the problem L- is we do have people who've spilled the beans, but for the most part, they, unlike Lazar, the, for most part, they haven't gone on the record and they haven't sort of generated the publicity um, that Lazar had either. You know, he was someone who went on the mainstream news and gave interviews to authors, you know, and um, people like Tim Good include the extensive yes. material in his Alien Liaison book about um, Lazar. Listen, got to take a time out, uh, Nick, when we okay. come back. Uh, we can uh, finish up on Area 51 and uh, talk a little bit about the Montauk facility out there on uh, Long Island. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show here on AM740. Stay with us. When in doubt, blame the government. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Welcome back. Nick Redfern is with us, and his uh, brand new book is called Keep Out, Secret Places Governments uh, Don't Want Us to Know About. And um, did you want to touch on any of the other Area 51 whistleblowers that maybe have not spoken on the record, but maybe you've heard uh, from them off the record? Yeah, I mean, there are a number of people who've come forward, and and granted, they all sort of came forward pretty much in the wake of Bob Lazar. And, you know, what's interesting is that a lot of different people came forward with different perspectives and angles. For example, a number of people came forward who said, you know, I worked with Lazar um, back in the mid-'80s on... Reagan, President Reagan's strategic defense initiative, the Star Wars program. So that was kind of interesting. It wasn't a UFO leak, but it filled in more gaps on Lazar's background. Um, now, on top of that, we've had other, other people um, come forward who've spoken about, you know, some of the classic types of stories about seeing dead alien body, bodies in cryogenic storage deep below the base. Um, other people who claim to read briefing papers about what the U.S. government knew about UFOs and sort of highly classified UFO-related programs dealing with everything from UFO encounters, visitations, um, implications for religion and all sorts of things they claim to have seen in briefing papers out at Area 51. So what's interesting is that, you know, I think if all these stories are fake, you know, we'd be getting kind of like the same story over and over again because it would be like a set fake situation. But the fact that we're getting people from who claim to work there over different years, different decades, talking about things from their own perspectives, but filling in things that, you know, also in some respects tell the same story, that to me comes across more plausible and believable rather than sort of somebody reading from a, you know, a set script. So uh, even though Lazar is certainly the most vocal and visual person, you know, he's actually only one of probably somewhere in the region about 15 or 16 or 16 people who, you know, broadly told similar stories, but not to that sort of scale. I, I want to talk about uh, the Montauk facility, um, uh, often uh, referred to as Camp Hero, or the Montauk Air Force Station on Montauk, mm-hmm. uh, Long Island. And uh, it has been described um, uh, as sort of an outgrowth of uh, the, the, the Philadelphia experiment. Yeah. Uh, which very quickly was, you know, the uh, for the benefit of the, uh, the listeners not familiar, uh, the uh, the U.S. Um, naval destroyer, the USS Eldridge, 
supposedly equipped with some sort of cloaking device, um, was supposed to be sort of invisible to 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 radar. Um, may, may have been equipped with some sort of a Tesla coil. We're not really sure, but supposedly, according to the legend, the Eldridge actually uh, vanished uh, to the visible eye. I mean, and then and reappeared um, uh, off of uh, the coast of Norfolk, Virginia, I guess. And uh, when it reappeared, uh, uh, crew members uh, were disoriented. Some of them reportedly were sort of uh, fused into the bulkhead and died a horrible death. Others just disappeared entirely. Um, how does that connect with Camp Hero in, in, in uh, Montauk, Long Island? Sure. Well, yeah, I mean, the Philadelphia Experiment, 1943, you know, contrary to what a lot of people think, the, the, the story that we're told you know, isn't that the Navy was trying to achieve literal optical invisibility. It was radar invisibility right. and also invisibility to magnetic mines that the Nazis were using. Uh, but supposedly something went wrong or the technology involved um, actually as a byproduct rendered the ship literally invisible and possibly even, you know, sort of scrambled its atoms and then reconfigured them again at the at in Philadelphia. Now, the story is that the Navy really panicked when this happened and didn't really understand the technology that they were dealing with. And then rather than sort of face it and deal with it and try and understand it, they kind of got cold feet, backed away and shut the entire thing down. And supposedly it was shut down for like 10 or 12, 13 years. Now, as it relates to the Montauk story, the, the story we get there is that supposedly in the 50s, there were people who thought, well, you know, now the war's over, the Second World War, we beat the Germans, you know, and we had atomic weapons to beat Japan, etc. Um, and, and the war's out the way, you know, we can go back and look at some of these other projects that we put on hold not just because we didn't understand the technology, but because we're fighting a war. And one of them supposedly was, you know, the, the Philadelphia experiment. And the story is that this place on Long Island that used to be called Camp Hero and then became the Montauk Air Force Station, um, the story is that that's where the, um, the research that originally began inadvertently as a result of what happened at Philadelphia, uh, at the Montauk installation, and a lot of people talk about it when it was a, an active base. It's actually closed down now. It's a state park. But um, prior to that, uh, certainly, you know, for, for decades and decades, it was sort of a strategic military installation. There's been a lot of rumors about some very weird research having been undertaken at Montour. For example, um, invisibility research, teleportation, um, mind control stuff. All, all sorts of sort of fringe technology-based um, research. Now, what's interesting, a lot of people say, well, there's just no way, you know, the government would be involved in that sort of thing. It's just too far out, you know, it's just like sci-fi. But one of the things I often do is use the Freedom of Information Act to try and, you know, get, get additional data on a story you're investigating. And, you know, I try and treat these investigations like a regular news investigation and one of the things i found was that as far back as the early 2000s you know that's as far as we can verify but there are indications it goes further back we know the government was doing um teleportation research the air force have actually released a document called the teleportation study 
which looked at the feasibility of whether or not literal teleportation of the type that worked you know, very well in Star Trek and, and less well so in The Fly um, you know, could, was, a, was a reality or if it could be developed. Um, we also know that as far back as the 1940s, the Navy was looking into things like invisibility. Uh, they had a project called Yahuti, uh, which is basically looking at the way of, of trying to sort of bend light and diffuse light to, to render aircraft, uh, literally you know, flying aircraft, I mean, uh, invisible. This was like a, a Navy project. So we know the sorts of things that were allegedly going on in Philadelphia and later at Montauk were being researched by the government. Now, one of the weirder things is that there was supposedly mind-related research going on at Montauk where the idea of people sort of project, you know, creating imagery in the mind. Ah, the Montauk chair. Yes, like externalizing it. You know, for example, the story was that one person kind of created this image in their mind of like a Bigfoot creature and then was able to project it outwardly so it had some sort of semblance in reality, like a semi-spectral, you know, hairy ape-man type thing, which um, sort of lost, con you know, the, the creator, if you like, of this mind monster lost control of it. Now, that sounds, you know, extremely controversial, but when I was researching the book, one of the people I spoke to was a man named Gabe Valdez, who uh, used to hold a... He, he unfortunately passed away last year, but uh, he held a position of deep responsibility in the New Mexico State Police, and he investigated a lot of cattle mutilations with the FBI in the 1970s in the area. And he told me how he'd learned that the government had been doing research, <coughs> research to create sort of holographic Bigfoot-type creatures um, and project them in the vicinity of military installations, sensitive ones, to try and frighten people and keep them away. So, you know, and this was... And Gabe Valdez, you know, was a highly respected um, police officer working with the FBI on cattle mutes and all sorts of different things. And, you know, he was saying something that was very similar to the stories coming out of Montauk. So kind of like with the Bob Lazar thing at Area 51, you know, we're getting validation and additional evidence that shows the very sorts of things that have been alleged about what's going on at Montauk. We can verify through the Freedom of Information Act and witnesses and people like Gabe Valdez that this sort of research was taking place, which obviously adds weight to the idea that you know, this was also going on at Montauk. Uh, uh, going back to the connection to the Philadelphia experiment, um, over the years I've, I've talked to two people who claimed that they were on board the USS Eldridge. Mm. One is Al Bilak and the other is Duncan Cameron, mm -hmm. who claimed that they jumped... Uh, when the Eldridge sort of vanished, uh, they sort of jumped overboard and ended up in at the Montauk facility in the 1970s or the 1980s and discovered that there was some sort of a time travel experiment going on. Are you familiar with that story? Yeah, I am. I mean, this is, this is without doubt, you know, the most controversial aspect of the whole Montauk story. You know, it's one thing to say the government was researching invisibility or whatever, you know, but to talk about time loops and, you know, the past and present being linked, you know, I think if anyone's going to say something like that, you know, we need some sort of validation and proof for it, which we don't have right now, you know, and we have to remember as well, you know, that this back in 84 was the subject of a, a sci-fi movie called The Philadelphia Experiment, this very issue of two sailors jumping overboard and, you know, going into the future. 
Now, people in the conspiracy field say, well, the makers of the movie learned something about the true story and decided to make a film about it. And then, on the other hand, you have people who say, well, no, it was a movie, and then other people jumped on the bandwagon, you know, and used that as a sort of a, a springboard to say that this is what really happened. Um, I think the best that I can say is that, you know, I mean, I've actually interviewed a number of people who have left me in no doubt that some sort of weird experiment did go on back in 1943 in Philadelphia. Uh, for example, I interviewed one guy who said he was fully aware um, of this famous story about how supposedly some of the sailors vanished uh, from, a, from a bar. There was like a bar brawl one, one Saturday night a couple of weeks after, and a couple of the sailors who were supposedly involved started to feel ill, and they sort of literally flickered on and off for like five minutes and the naval police came in and emptied the bar and, you know, told everybody not to talk about this. And um, this guy who, who I interviewed, and um, his name is Majacek, um, he, Yuri Majacek, he told me how, you know, he he'd actually, he was in hospital at the time uh, in 1949 and he heard these stories being told way back then about how, you know, these guys had flickered on and off in the uh, bar and this was long before the Philadelphia Experiment story first surfaced in the mid-1950s from a man named Morris Jessup. Yes. You know, contrary to what a lot of people think, in 43, the story didn't break then. It didn't break till the 50s. But, but Majacek told me how he'd heard this story in 49 when he was in um, one of the, uh, the naval hospitals. So it's things like this that lead me to believe the experiments did occur. You know, the, the big problem is... is is understanding exactly what went on and, you know, whose testimony relates to it and et cetera, et cetera. So. The, uh, the, the, the sailors that were sort of flickering in and out of this dimension, you mentioned a bar, that, didn't, that wouldn't happen to have been at the Memory Motel, would it? Um, well, to be honest, I mean, most people who've spoken about this have not actually identified a particular bar. The, I mean, the story is that supposedly it was like a Saturday night a few weeks later, you know, the, everybody was drinking beer and there was a fight and, and some of the guys literally started to feel sick and they were sort of flashing like a light bulb, you know, going on and off. You flicker in the, you know, you're on off switch on the light bulb. They were like that. Um, there's one story about them sort of literally just vanishing mm. and not coming back. But the other stories, which, and these are the more prevalent ones, suggest they were literally sort of going semi-transparent and then, you know, purely physical form again, and then they'd sort of lose their solidity and, you know, they become sort of almost looking like a, like a spectral, you know, like a ghost or something like that. And um, stories about them supposedly being taken to, you know, secure hospitals and, you know, just some of the guys just losing their minds and all sorts of weird stuff like that. And, um, you know, again, when you have military people talking about this from their own perspectives and different angles, you know, I think the onus is upon us to, to investigate this more. Absolutely. I mentioned the Memory Motel because the Memory Motel in Montauk, of course, um, I'm a big Rolling Stones fan, and there was a, a cut off their um, Black and Blue album came out in the mid-70s called Memory Motel. Oh, okay. Which was... Well, it's interesting you should mention that because yeah. um, about a year ago I spent um, one night in the hotel room at Joshua Tree in California where the uh, musician Graham Parsons died, who yes. was a good friend of Rolling Stones guitarist Keith Richards. And there's actually um, 
a newspaper clipping in the room about how it talks about how Graham Parsons and Keith Richards used to go out in the California desert looking for UFOs. <laughs> that is interesting. That is interesting. And, and Parsons' body, of course, was uh, uh, body napped, I guess, from the, uh, the local yeah, funeral parlor right. and cremated right there at the Joshua Tree. That's right. Uh, but the Memory Motel, uh, which is in Montauk, and I mentioned the Rolling Stone uh, a song, uh, I um, um, have heard, I think I was, I, I was, I was interviewing a, a gentleman by the name of Preston Nichols, who was a sound recording engineer at the Bell Studios in New York, and he claimed... Uh, that he he had put some time in in the Montauk chair, if you will. He was part of a uh, sort of a mind amplification, mind control type project at Montauk. Keep in mind, he he uh, he based this on uh, sort of recovered memories. Mm-hmm. So for what that's worth, uh, but he he talks about some strange things going on at the Memory Motel and sort of people flitting in and out of existence and people mm-hmm. seemingly walking through walls. And have you been to the Memory Motel? No, I actually haven't, but you're quite right. I mean, there are a lot of these stories, and and most of them do sort of focus around people sort of flitting in and out, you know, all this stuff about walking through walls, people vanishing, and some of the technology not necessarily being fully understood, you know, more kind of like dabbling with stuff and just seeing what we can do, you know, versus what we can't do. Um, And, you know, these stories do go right back um, to the 40s. I mean... There's actually a story of another guy who came forward in the early 1980s and um, claimed that you know he was actually on the show, actually not the Eldridge, but another ship apparently used in a, an experiment in 43. And he made an intriguing statement where he said throughout the experiment he could see all the crew members, but it, they didn't look like they did normally. And that's all he would say when he was questioned. You know, he just wouldn't expand on that, which, but, which in itself is sort of a weird intriguing statements and he said that he he saw the sort of the ship vanish beneath him and he got this sort of sudden sense of vertigo and a need to sort of put his hand out to steady himself on the edge of the ship which he did he could feel the ship but he was so sort of dizzy and vertigo driven because of the nothing below him that you know he he just he, again he started to start to feel ill but he said he could see all the other guys but there was something that wasn't right about them and he felt kind of disturbed about describing what that was and you know and, and again the big question is you know why would that be sir? well uh of course i mentioned memory motel by the rolling stones and uh our next uh, location has uh, been written about by bands like uh, megadeth uh from their album rust and peace i'm talking about probably the biggest and still most famous building located at wright patterson air force base that would be Hangar 18, and we'll discuss with Nick Redfern when The Conspiracy Show continues after this. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Welcome back. Nick Redfern is with us. The book is Keep Out. Secret places governments don't want you to know about, and uh, we've talked about Area 51. We've talked about we've talked about uh, the Montauk facility. Uh, perhaps, if time permits, we can discuss HARP. Uh, but right now, I want to talk about uh, Hangar 18, and uh, uh, located uh, at um, uh, Wright Patterson Air Force Base, which I believe is in Ohio. And this is the location that the the debris and perhaps the occupants of the, uh, whatever it was that crashed uh, 
near Corona, uh, uh, near Roswell, New Mexico, uh, uh, back in 47. This is the place where a lot of this stuff was supposedly taken and stored. Hangar 18. Uh, Nick, uh, what can you tell us about Hangar 18? Yeah, well, basically, I mean, Hangar 18 is kind of like a generic term that's been sort of created um, to describe a number of sort of off-limits installations at Wright-Patterson, which is in Dayton, Ohio. Um, And for the most part, they're sort of described as underground vaults and tunnels and all interconnected. I mean, contrary to what a lot of people think, there actually isn't sort of a huge hangar at the base with a number 18 painted on the side, you know, with with guards outside. It's, It's not that simple for us, unfortunately. But uh, as I said, it's like a generic term to to describe these sort of underground areas. And uh, a number of people, um, highly credible people, actually, have gone on record about seeing um, like small, strange-looking bodies in what looks like cryogenic storage in these large missile-like tanks um, deep below the base. Other people claim to have read autopsy reports, old paper reports going back to the 50s and computerized files today. Um, even none other than um, Senator Barry Goldwater, a very credible figure, you know, has actually gone on the record. You can actually go on YouTube and see him on the Larry King show talking about this. But he had a personal interest in UFOs. And back in the early 1960s, he approached one of his good friends, um, an Air Force general, General Curtis LeMay. And basically, Goldwater said to him, you know, I've heard all these rumors about what's going on at Wright-Patterson and what we supposedly have stored there. You know, I've got an interest in UFOs. I'm a senator. I'd like to see what's stored there. So, you know, I'll know once and for all. And LeMay basically said to him, um, not only no, but hell no, and don't ever ask me again. And he added by saying that, I can't go there, and you can't go there either, and don't ever ask again. And Goldwater, recognizing that this was clearly an issue relative to national security, didn't bring it up again. And he actually stayed silent for like 13 or 14, and then only sort of made a number of sort of very brief enigmatic comments to researchers around that time. But in later years, as I said on the Larry King show, he was far more vocal and open about, you know, these stories about crashed UFOs and dead aliens and wanting to see what was right Patterson and basically being told by General LeMay to go away. So, you know, these aren't, the important thing is the people like Goldwater have come forward. You know, these aren't sort of deep throat or Mr. X types that we can never verify or find out, you know. Um, Goldwater was actually once the, you know, the Republican candidate for president. So, you know, how much more sort of, you know, in government and well-known do you have to be, you know, to be believed. So I think, you know, this is clear evidence to suggest something weird has been going on at Wright-Patterson and people have seen something strange there. The problem is, of course, pretty much everybody's talking about these vaults being sort of 20, 30, 40 feet underground, you know, with super-thick steel doors, guards 24-7, and, you know, only the real elite of the sort of scientific and medical communities going in there to sort of look at these bodies every few years to see if anything new can be determined or learned from them. You know, it's almost described as kind of 18 as it's, as it stands, so to speak. It's almost described as if this place is almost like a museum, you know, where certain research has been done, but maybe they've reached sort of a brick wall 
and so everything's basically preserved in the event that you know further gains and advances could be made in future years. I think. Did you look into the uh, the legend? It's a fabulous story. I don't know if it's apocryphal uh, that the great entertainer uh, Jackie Gleason was actually invited to Hangar 18 by Richard Nixon, and that, that Gleason once told people uh, at one of his many parties, uh, when he got into the cups, which he was wont to do, that he had seen alien bodies at Hangar 18. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is an interesting story. It's one of these that a lot of people, even in the UFO field, aren't fully aware of what happened. Jackie Gleason, famous comedian, actually had a very deep, and profound interest in UFOs, going right back to sort of the era of Kenneth Arnold in 1947. And he, he owned literally a massive library of UFO and paranormal books. I mean, I'm literally talking thousands of books. And he, you know, he, he took part on things like the Long John Neville radio show and UFOs years ago and things like this. And that, that he was sort of a really big passion for it. He was very knowledgeable on the subject as well. Um, and he was also very good friends with President Richard Nixon. And the story is that, um, you know, Gleason, like uh, Goldwater, you know, having an interest and having official connections, really wanted to try and find an inroad to whether or not this was true. You know, and he said that he'd heard these stories about alien bodies stored at Wright-Patterson, etc. But Nixon said, well, you know, there's actually... There's actually another location. You know, the story was that they weren't just held at one place, which makes a lot of sense. You know, if you've got these things and you don't want to risk a disaster happening at one base, you keep them fortified in several locations. And the the story that um, was given to uh, Gleason was that that Homestead um, Air Force Base in Florida was the one where he was told that uh, a number of bodies were, were held. And according to the story that Nixon supposedly allowed or got permission or clearance for Gleason to actually see these bodies very, very briefly um, in Florida, at the military base in Florida, Homestead. Now, Gleason reportedly told his wife about this. She's gone on the... His ex, one of his ex-wives went on record as saying that, you know, that he, she heard this story from him. Um, a good friend of mine and one of the witnesses who was involved in the famous... December 1980, Rendlesham Forest case, uh, Larry Warren, who's one of the airmen involved. Yeah, he, I know he Larry. Yeah. With, oh, okay. Well, Larry told me he, he spoke openly with Gleason, and Gleason told him the story about going there as well. Um, and he said, Gleason said he saw these small bodies, and again, they were in sort of like cryogenic tanks, you know, preserved, frozen, etc., etc. And apparently, Gleason was very, for all you know, his interest and fascination with the UFO subject. He was sort of profoundly disturbed and, you know, almost suffered like a uh, post-traumatic stress disorder situation by being exposed to these bodies. And from some of the words he said, it was almost as if he wished he'd never seen it because it sort of psychologically upset him quite a bit to actually be exposed to, you know, what what was being stored there. Unbelievable. Uh, Listen, we'll uh, take one final time out, Nick. When we come back, let's talk high-frequency active auroral research program. And depending on who you talk to, it's either an ionic spheric research program uh, funded by the U.S. Air Force and the Navy, or uh, it's involved in something far more nefarious, like uh, moving the jet stream around, causing earthquakes, even maybe mind control. We'll talk HARP on the other side with Nick Redfern here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. 
The truth will set you free, but first, it'll really tick you off. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. All right, up there in the uh, the Copper Valley in Alaska is an array of um, hundreds of high-powered radio frequency transmitters uh, pointed up and a great deal of speculation as to um, as to what HARP is really all about. Again, it's uh, funded by the U.S. Air Force, the U.S. Navy, the University of Alaska, and the good old Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, otherwise known as DARPA. Uh, and ostensibly, it's to analyze the ionosphere and investigate the potential for developing ionospheric enhancement technology for radio communications and surveillance, but some people think there's something more sinister going on. Uh, Nick, you've looked into HARP. What do you think's going on up there? Yeah, I mean, this is sort of one of the, the areas, I guess, that's sort of really at the forefront of conspiracy research today, you know, this the HARP facility. As you pointed out, it, it's primarily, or well, the official story is that it's, you know, designed to... Um, increase or, or better the technology to allow for communications via radio and also surveillance issues as well and essentially by it's the the important words are um in, in terms of what it's doing uh, enhancement of the ionosphere uh, and it's basically the official story you know it's to make it easier and more effective um to use the ionosphere to allow for communications now uh, within the sort of conspiracy research fields as it relates to, um, you know, what Hart may be up to, uh, within the conspiracy research fields that, you know, focus on this area, one of the, the areas that they focus on for the most part is the way in which possibly one byproduct of this technology could be to manipulate the weather. You know, in, in other words, weaponize the weather. That's to say, you know, if there was a way you could literally sort of direct, you know, tsunamis and tornadoes and storms, earthquakes even, you know, to specific locations without even sort of sending in troops, aircraft, battleships or whatever, you know, and decimate one particular area. Um, And then, of course, there's plausible deniability by just putting it down to the rigors of nature. Now, before again, people say, you know, well, this just couldn't be. This is just conspiracy, you know, theories. Um, one important thing to note, and you can find these documents online, is that in 1997, the then U.S. Secretary of Defense, William Cohen, he delivered a, a speech um, at the Georgia-based, a Georgia-based uh, conference on terrorism, weapons of mass destruction, and U.S. strategy. That was the title, and it was actually held at the uh, University of Georgia. And at the conference, Cohen said, and these are his exact words, that there were shadowy people out there who were, quote, engaging in an eco-type of terrorism whereby they can alter the climate, set off earthquakes and volcanoes remotely through the use of electromagnetic waves. And also, just a few years ago, the Air Force declassified a report called the 2025 Report, which was basically a study of where the Air Force wanted to be in 2025 in terms of technologies. And one of the issues contained in there is this relative to the idea of determining how the weather can be weaponized. And, and that's, again, one of the big issues that's been linked with HARP. And certainly in recent years, or last, sort of the last sort of 12, 18 months, the one issue that's really been at the forefront of the conspiracy theorists as it relates to HARP these sort of massive die-offs that we had about 15 months ago of birds 
all across not just the US but the world, you know, just dropping out of the sky in their hundreds and thousands. And one of the theories is that this was sort of a byproduct of, of some of these weird harp experiments as well. Well, it's um, it's fascinating. It's a fascinating area uh, to research. Congratulations again on okay. uh, Keep Out, a secret places governments don't want us to know about. What's next for Nick Redfern? What are you working on? Um, well, I've got a book out in June, Richard. It's called The Pyramids and the Pentagon, and it's all about the way in which since, uh, well, actually for back to the 40s, that government agencies have taken an interest in things like uh, ancient artifacts, uh, religious mysteries. So in other words, it's kind of like a, a study of real-life Indiana Jones-type characters, but Indiana Jones-type people actually within the government who've been funded to, to go out and you know resolve everything from things like the Ark of the Covenant, Noah's Ark, um, the Holy Grail, and, and things like this. And I got a lot of official files on this particular subject, such as even government files looking at how the pyramids were built and, you know, uh, the Department of Defense looking at claims that the pyramids were built by levitation, actually contained in, you know, official files. So it's it sort of deals with ancient astronauts, you know, all these sort of ancient mysteries, but from what the government knows about the subject. Ah, sounds like a great one. Can't wait uh, to get my review copy and get you back on the program. Oh, well, I'll, I'll make sure that uh, you definitely get a copy <laughs> sent out as soon as uh, they're ready. All right. Thank you, Nick. Always a pleasure. All right. Thanks, Richard. Bye-bye. Good night. Nick Redfern. Keep out, uh, and you can, um, uh, again, uh, we've hooked up to Nick Redfern's website, nickredfern.com, uh, I believe. Anyway, if you just go to richardserrett.com, and on the homepage there, click on Nick's name, and it'll take you right over to his site, and you can learn all about Nick, and, and um, he just keeps out uh, coming out with some real quality material. Uh, he's like Stephen King, the way he can just, he's just constantly writing, um, already working on his second book this year. All right, that is it for us. My thanks uh, to David Gaskin for production. Uh, also, thanks to Gary David, who uh, was talking to us about the legends of the Hopi Indian and giants and cannibalism in the American Southwest. Nick Redfern, of course. And for you, and to you, rather, for listening. Uh, back next week with uh, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, our paranormal investigator, will drop by for her regular second Sunday of the month uh, hit with us also. Uh, we'll uh, speak with the former editor-in-chief of Ancient American Magazine, Frank Joseph. Hope you'll be along for the ride. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.